It's a real privilege to be here in your beautiful city of Yorkton. Uh, I haven't been here for a long time. It's probably over nine years. And uh, I must say, uh, you're so welcoming and, and what a group uh, that you are tonight. And, and uh, my wife and I, we just feel so welcome to be here and uh, to be able to share tonight. So uh, my name is Dean Madsen. Uh, I've attended Lighthouse to All Nations Church for uh, quite some time in Regina uh, for almost uh, 22 years. And uh, I'm married to my lovely wife, Laura, who's with us here tonight. And uh, Laura's a special constable with the Regina Police. And uh, she works in the cells. Uh, so when people get arrested, they come to see my wife. And uh, they get, to, you know, to mark the occasion, they'll get their picture taken and they'll be able to leave their, their prints and, and that, that sort of thing. But um, Laura carries... Uh, the Holy Spirit, and she carries Jesus. And, and people, Laura sees people at their worst when people first get arrested, but people sense the love of Jesus from her. And uh, uh, some of Laura's colleagues call, call her the, the cell whisperer because she can calm people right down. And she's very kind to them. She'll, you know, give them a blanket. And, uh, you know, if they're hungry, they'll get a muffin. But I have to say, one of my goals in life is not to show up at my wife's work. <laughs> I don't think I would get a muffin. I, I know I wouldn't get a blanket. So therefore, I walk by the spirit. You know. um, and I've, uh, I've been with the bus company in Regina uh, for, for 31 years. And um, you know, I hate to point this out, but, but Randy made another mistake. I'm not the CEO of STC. Uh, I have been acting CEO, but my title is Chief Operating Officer. So I know it almost sounds the same, COO. But uh, you know, thanks, Randy, for the promotion. Or, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm enjoying it tonight. So um, a lot of people, when when you tell them that you've worked at a place for 31 years, they kind of, well, geez, you know, how old were you when you started? Like 12? Pretty. I was 16, so it was pretty close. But tonight I want to share some of my testimony about becoming a Christian and, and uh, what the Lord's been doing in my life. So uh, I was originally born in Edmonton, Alberta, and uh, um, my dad had a very successful career in the oil and gas industry. So the first few years of my life, the first 10 years of my life, uh, we grew up uh, you know, fairly well-to-do, uh, lived on acreages. My dad had uh, airplanes, and uh, we had beautiful homes, beautiful cars, and that sort of thing. And uh, I loved my dad. I just loved being with my dad all the time. And uh, on the weekends, when my mom, I have a, a sister as well, uh, uh, an older sister, just a year older than me. But uh, every Saturday, um, my mom and my sister, we dropped them off at the mall so they could shop all day. And my dad and I would go flying. And we'd uh, go into fly-in breakfast, have pancake breakfast. And he would let me drink coffee when I was seven years old and you know, just had a great time. But then uh, my mom and dad got divorced when I was about 10 years old in Alberta. And uh, there was a lot of fighting previous to then, and I didn't really understand what was going on. But I knew it had to do maybe with, you know, uh, he had a change of lifestyle somehow. And uh, there was, you know, other women and, and that sort of thing. And um, after, right after the divorce, uh, my mom decided that she wanted to move away. 
See, my mom is from Norway. She came right from Norway when she was 18 or 19 years old. Didn't speak any English when she first came. And she didn't have any other relatives other than a sister who moved with her from Norway. And she lived in Saskatchewan. So my mom thought, well, I want to live close to my sister in Saskatchewan. Um, so my aunt, um, my Norwegian aunt, lived on a farm near Redverse, Saskatchewan. So my mom didn't want to live in a really small town, so somehow we picked the town of Weyburn to move. And so I was almost uh, 12 years old at that time, and we moved to Weyburn. And I remember wondering to myself, like, where are all the trees in this province? (laughs) Why is it so flat? Why is it so windy? And of course, um, it was a huge lifestyle change for us because we came from these big homes and... Uh, you know, uh, nice cars and and airplanes where now I didn't have my dad anymore. And my mom really, you know, I found out later that mom really wanted to move us, you know, out of a bad situation. She didn't want us to get involved in whatever dad was involved with. So here we are in Weyburn in a very small house. My mom doesn't speak, you know, she could speak English, but not very well. I remember my friends coming over and what did your mom just say? Your mom has such a thick accent. And to us kids, we just, you know, we were used to it. So my mom got a job uh, at a motel cleaning rooms, and uh, we lived a very, very humble life uh, from that point on. So, so life changed quite a bit. Instead of going flying with my dad every weekend, I was dragged to, my mom and sister didn't go to the, the malls anymore, but I was dragged to garage sales every Saturday, and I just hated it. Um, and the thing with my mom and dad was they were polar opposites. My mom, and still is, one of the most upstanding, um, morally sound people. She's never drank in her life. She's, she's never smoked. And she has very, very high morals. Even after the divorce, she's, she's had one boyfriend, and I think they went on a couple dates. And then since then, she never remarried or anything like that. She's just a beautiful person. And um, my dad, on the other side, was, you know, kind of like a good time Charlie. He just, you know, uh, came from a really wild family, um, lots of lots of alcohol. Uh, my dad's been married four times. And, you know, I remember um, when, I, when I was older, I think, you know, how did these two people ever get together? They're so different. But the other weird thing about it, my mom was very, she wasn't very affectionate. She wasn't very warm. But my dad, on the other hand, he would just make you feel like a million bucks. You felt like you were the only person in the whole world and the sun was just shining on you. So there was such a, and I just really didn't know where I belong. So um, at the time we moved to Weber, my dad was remarried and I remember that really hurt. And we, my mom got an unlisted number, so I didn't hear from my dad for about two or three years. Uh, He did still send uh, child support checks and and that sort of thing. So he had our address in Weyburn, but, um, you know, there was no way for him to phone or or ever talk to us. So I I just got bitter in my heart that, you know, I felt really abandoned, you know, by my dad. I didn't have a dad. All that sort of, you know, um, good times with my dad was over, and I just resolved, okay, that's, that's the way it is. So... One day when I was about 14, I managed to stay home and I was, I was watching TV and uh, my mom and my sister were out at garage sales and, and shopping. And I see this car pull up and, and here it was my dad. And I didn't know what to do in that, that second. I, I saw my dad through the picture window. He's coming up to the door and I thought to myself, oh man, do I just shut him out or do I let him in? So I let him in the door and of course we were reunited and we were talking for a couple hours 
And of course, I had changed. I mean, the last time he saw me, you know, I was this tall, and now I'm, you know, I'm 14 years old, so he saw a lot of changes in me. And then my mom and sister finally came home, and they're going, oh my gosh, you know, they, they saw this car with Alberta plates, and they kind of knew it was my dad, and, you know, they come in the house, and they peek around, but uh, everything was fine. So, um, so we got talking for a little bit and my mom and dad um you know they were they were friendly to each other and dad asked my mom well can i take the kids out for supper and uh, mom said well yeah sure you can and i didn't know this at the time but my dad had brought his his new wife and she was sort of waiting at the motel and wanted to meet with us and we had a really really good visit and uh so everything was fine and uh at the end of the visit he uh, my dad took us back to my mom's place and uh, I remember he asked my mom for uh, our phone number in Weyburn. And uh, I saw what mom wrote down on uh, a piece of paper, and it wasn't the real phone number. <laughs> so just before my dad left, I gave him the right phone number. Mom never asked me how he got the right number, because he would call after that. And he built up enough trust that he convinced my mom uh, for me to come. Uh, he, he asked, you know, can Dean come for the summer and, and spend a couple of weeks with me? And mom, you know, kind of thought about it and, you know, she thought, well, he's, he seems stable, he's, he's remarried. And so she was thinking maybe, maybe this isn't uh, such a bad idea. And now you have to understand what kind of kid I was when I was 14 years old. Um, people thought I was an absolute angel. I got really good marks in school. I never caused uh, any trouble. I was, you know, what you would call like a quiet kid. And you probably heard the saying, you really got to watch out for those quiet ones. In my case, it was very true. Even though I was really quiet, I had a mischievous side as well. For a number of years, I was just obsessed with making prank phone calls. Now, I see there's a lot of young kids you know, here tonight at the meeting. And back when I was 14 years old, there was no such thing as call display. <laughs> so no one knew who was calling, right? And uh, I, I had this knack to do impressions. So my friends and I would get together and I would do impressions of different students and I would call teachers and I would ask uh, if, the, if the teacher could meet with me after school. And then I would call other kids and I would be in a voice of a teacher and I'd cause all kinds of confusion. I would come to class the next day and just watch it all unfold. That's awesome. I, I thought so too. <laughs> so I would do all these impressions and I would, I would, you know, my friends would just roll on the ground laughing. Now my sister, on the other hand, was outwardly defiant. She would be going to parties already when she was 15. She'd always be in trouble with mom. And I just remember they would always be fighting and I would just be left in my own little world. Then once Saskatchewan evening, and I remember it was, it was a January evening, 40 below, and the cops pulled up in front of my house. I thought, oh, this is gonna be great. What did my sister do now? Well, it turned out the police officer was looking for that little culprit who was doing prank phone calls to a very annoyed teacher. And that teacher put a trace on that phone. My poor mom and aunt could not believe their little blonde angel could do such a thing. So I admitted it to the police that it was me, and fortunately I received, you are not to do that anymore or you could be in serious trouble. 
The next test I got from that partic particular teacher was 49%. <laughs> so that really cured me from doing prank phone calls for a while. However, I furthered my impression career in sort of my, my wild teenage years at parties where I would imitate teachers and, and other students. And uh, even uh, I would win some talent contests and uh, I went on to do a, a morning radio show in Regina for a little while. But after, just after a while, I just, you know, the impressions kind of faded away. And, uh, you know, I, but I really do miss those prank phone calls. They were a lot of fun. But, you know, I do thank God for phone solicitors. They're, they're, they're my friends. <laughs> You know, it's not that I'm mean to them. Like, a lot of people don't like phone solicitors and, and, and they'll hang up on them. I don't hang up on them. I give them a chance. So the first time they call, and there's this one in particular that always calls that they have a special on furnace cleaning and duct cleaning. I, I politely tell them the first time, no, I don't need any duct cleaning. I don't need any furnace cleaning. I'm good. And, you know, could you take my name off the list and, and the number? Okay and they'll call me again. And, and I'll do the same routine. No, I don't, I don't need that. Um, and last time you called, I asked you to take my name off the list and the number. But the third time they call, they're mine. <laughs> so the third time they call, they might get someone like maybe Morgan Freeman or something like that. So they'll say, sir, you know, we have a special on, on furnace cleaning and duct cleaning. And I'll say something like, well, now, I'm really glad you called. I have several ducks in my house. And I go to the back door. I let them out. I let them waddle around the grass. They go in the puddles and they get all dirty. Tell me, how much do you charge per duck? <laughs> Sometimes they get really annoyed. They almost sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm not talking about water ducks here. I'm talking about furnace ducks. <laughs> so you don't clean ducks. Would you be interested in bathing my cat? Anyway, you get the picture. I guess what I'm trying to say, I was a pretty good kid other than that visit from the police. So mom finally agrees, yes, you can go to Norman Wells. So dad bought me a ticket. So at this time, my dad moved from Edmonton. He bought a new oil business in Norman Wells North Northwest Territories. And so I got on a plane the day after my 15th birthday and I went to go see my dad. But mom gave me strict instructions that I didn't really understand at the time, but she said, if you see your dad drinking or doing anything that's illegal, you get on the phone right now. She said that in a Norwegian accent, by the way, that uh, I'm not gonna do. <laughs> Laura does it better. Anyway, um, so I got to see my dad in Norman Wells Northwest Terri Territories and the first few days, I, it was great. I was reacquainted with my dad. We got to work on his heavy equipment. He let me drive like 18-speed uh, vehicles, and I, you know, I learned to you know, drive uh, stick shift and everything. 
and I loved being with my dad. Again, he was so warm, he was so encouraging, and you know, I did not miss those those days of uh, garage sales with my my mom and sister those those that summer. But next thing you know, dad was saying, "Here, you know, try some of this." So I'm. I'm trying to learn a, a standard, and now I'm, you know, I have a snuff in my in my in my lips, and I'm, you know, and that kind of made me sick. And, it, and then the next thing you know, we'll have a cigarette. That'll make you feel better. And you got to understand, I was the biggest goody-goody in school, and here I am, you know, chewing snuff and smoking. And then the next thing you know, we, you know, we're we're going home, and then you know, we'll, we'll you know, just have a beer, you know, and you know. I just sort of shut out the thought of my mom and yeah, give me, a, you know, because I just didn't want to do anything. I was just sort of, you know, I didn't want to get so, sent home. I, I struggled because I know I wasn't supposed to have beer. I wasn't supposed to smoke. And then these people would come over and I mean, you know, we're talking about construction workers and, and oil uh, people and uh, everyone starts, you know, smoking drugs. And I'm right there, like, you know, these, these guys are, are grown men and I'm a 14-year-old, you know, just turned 15 fresh. And here, you know, people are passing me and my dad said, no, it's okay, you know, you can, you know, you can do this as well. And so here I am, you know, that, you know, two weeks into my visit and I'm chewing snuff, I'm smoking, I'm drinking and doing drugs. And so every day after that, until I left, we were either drinking and doing drugs, and then I come to realize, gee, my dad really has a problem. When I left Norman Wells, my dad gave me strict instructions, do not tell your mom. And I was like, don't worry, I, I won't. <laughs> so next year, I came along, so I, I started my grain 10 year, and I mean, I hung out with, you know, really, really good people, and I didn't tell anyone what I did, because my friends didn't drink, my friends didn't smoke, they didn't do drugs, and if they found out, I did. I, I don't think even if I told anyone that they would believe I would do something like that. Next year came along, and I was 16 years old. I went to see Dad again. But this time, as soon as I got off the plane, we were doing drugs. And then he would take me to bars, and there would be strip clubs. And here I'm 16 years old, and I'm like, oh, boy. And so needless to say, I was getting into my mind that, okay, so I guess this is what manhood's like. And I thought, well, this is, you know, it, it's not being about, you know, being a, a goody-goody uh, or sort of, you know, listening to my mom. So when I came home from that summer after hanging around my dad, in grade 11 and grade 12, I started hanging around with the wild kids, you know. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to start going to parties. Uh, I'm going to drink. And my mom was heartbroken. She knew that I drank now, and I started smoking, but she had no idea where this all started. But I loved having my father back in my life. You know, I loved the acceptance I got from dad. And if I had to drink and, and do drugs with him to keep that relationship going, that's just what I did. So these summers kept on going for a couple years. Then grade 12 came along and I graduated. And um, all of my friends moved away from Weyburn. They either had sports scholarships or they went to U.S. schools and went to university because their parents could afford it. And my dad, you know, he didn't really believe in, in sending his kids to school or, or money. It's just sort of you make it on your own. And, of course, mom didn't have any money. She, she worked two jobs by this time. She worked at a motel. 
uh, cleaning rooms, and she worked at a grocery store mopping the floors, and so she just didn't have the money. And so once all my friends moved away, and, and at the time I was 16 um, when I started at the Weyburn Bus Depot, that's where I started out. So now I'm, I'm 18 years old, all my friends are gone, and I'm, I'm making minimum wage at the bus depot. And I thought, man, and I had all this guilt piling up. So I had no friends and I wasn't partying anymore. And I actually went into a depression. And it wasn't just a case where, you know, people say, well, just I'm depressed, I'm bummed out. It was an actual clinical depression. I remember I could still go to work, but barely, you know, I couldn't do anything else. And mom got really worried about me because it got so bad where, you know, you could just tell on my face there was just despair. And I remember, you know, the only sort of relief I could get was when I went to bed. When I, when I fell asleep, it sort of, you know, it was gone. I, you know, I was, you know, I wasn't there. And then as soon as I wake up, this cloud of darkness and this, just this feeling of hopelessness would be right there in the morning. And so this went on for about six months, and mom finally took me to a doctor and, and you know, um, told the doctor, and my mom was right there, just, you know, I'm just depressed, I, you know, I can't think. Um, my brain even, you know, it seems like it's slowing down. When people talk to me, I have to really listen and try to process the words. Like it was a real depression, and I guess in those days, they, they didn't, uh, you know, put me on any kind of drugs or, or anything like that. But it was just something, I, I remember the doctor said, you're young, come on, just snap out of it. You have your whole life ahead of you, don't worry. And, but that didn't help. But I remember I was working at the bus depot and just sort of um, at the counter. And this, this little old lady came up and she had some sort of tract. And it, and it talked about, you know, having a new life um, and, and something about Jesus. And so I, I didn't think anything of it, and I, I took it from her because, and, and I remember my boss at the time just said, you know, don't, you know, don't take stuff like that from people. You know, they, they, you know, they spread all this stuff, and it's just, you know, it's just garbage. But I was so desperate, you know, for answers, you know, to life. And one day, one of my friends from Regina came down, and um, he told me about one of the girls that we graduated with, and she was the most popular girl in high school. And all her friends alienated her because she became a born-again Christian. And I was like, well, what's a born-again Christian? And I was thinking about this tract, and I thought, you know, why did she do that? And, and what does it all mean? And everyone was sort of, you know, like, oh, we're not going to talk to her again. And I thought, well, geez, I want to talk to her. Like, wh what happened? You know, is, is, there, is there something real there? And so, so anyway... Once I talked uh, to uh, my cousin, who, you know, he was, um, he was interested in Christianity, and he brought this book, and I said, you know, you know this lady, you know, gave me this tract, um, you know, this, this girl I went to high school with, she's a born-again Christian, do you know anything about this? And he explained to me, you know, there's our God, there's a Father in heaven, and he can't look on sin, and he sent Jesus to die, so... The, the Lord could have relationship with us. And it was that glimmer of hope, like I didn't make a commitment or anything like that at that time, but it was a glimmer of hope that it actually took me out of that depression. And then I applied for a job in Regina at the Regina Bus Depot. And uh, I started, um, I think it was 1988. I was 18 years old. 
And I moved to Regina and I got a job loading buses and uh, handling baggage. And I started to feel good about myself again. The depression was gone. I have a job, you know, maybe there's a future here. And the depression lifted. So I went right back into drugs and, and alcohol as soon as I had friends, you know, um, that did the same. And uh, so I, I worked at, uh, at the, the bus depot for about a year and I was loading bags and, and, uh, and uh, working in the freight department. Then uh, there was a job that came open at, at the ticket office. And then I thought, well, this, this is probably a move up. So I applied for this ticket office job and I got it. But some of the employees warned me. They said, okay, well, you know, that's great. You got this job, but there's this caretaker that you're going to see because you're working nights. And he is crazy. Like he's one of these born again Christians. He carries his Bible to work and he tries to get everybody saved. And, you know, just, you know, just tell him you're not interested. Just, just avoid him as much as you can. So I thought, oh, okay, this born-again Christian thing. So I was uh, around 20, uh, 20 years old when I had applied for that job. And um, sure enough, I met this, this older co uh, caretaker. And he was a different sort. I mean, he was 60 years old, and he was all hunched over like this. And he would have his mop, and he'd be mopping. And he didn't have any, any teeth. He didn't have, you know, any, you know, false teeth or anything like that. So when he came and talked to you, it was just quite a sight, and you just didn't know, look, you know, do I look at him or, you know, do I not? And, uh, you know, he didn't, you know, he didn't start talking about Jesus right away. He just kind of wanted to know, you know, how are you? What's your name? And the more I talked to him, I found out he is the most gentle, kind, and there's something about his eyes, like, you know, there's this love about him. And so I'd be working the ticket office, and there'd be people coming in at the bus depot and they would get stranded. And this guy would take these stranded people home with him. And he would feed them, he would give them shelter. Then he'd bring them back the next day and made sure they had enough money for their journey. And I thought, what is this guy all about? And then I just started talking about him. And then he did eventually say, you know, uh, I'm a Christian and I believe in Jesus. And then, you know, he told me his testimony. He said, you know, I was a terrible alcoholic. He said, when I was in my early 20s, I found Jesus. And he said, you know, I just fell away. And then I, I just got in back into the alcohol for about 40 years. And he made a, you know, uh, what happened was, you know, it got so bad that he got so sick that he, he lost the use of his legs. And, you know, and I didn't understand this at the time because I didn't know anything about the Bible. But he said, you know, I couldn't walk. But he said, um, he quoted a, a verse out of the Bible, and it's in Luke 15. And he said, and when he came to himself, and he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will raise and go to my father and say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And he was saying the scripture. I still remember the scripture and where it's found, but I had no idea what it meant. But what he was saying was, you can never go far away from God where he won't accept you again. And so on my break, he would always, you know, he would, you know, start talking to me about Jesus. And uh, of course, he was just such a beautiful man. His body still showed the effect of a really, really rough life. And um, 
he was, you know, he became very open and bold about his faith and told me, you know, if you give your life to Jesus, he says, I don't know where you're, what you're going through, but he says, if you don't have Jesus, you're living a life that's just going to lead to a lot of emptiness, you know. And at the time, I mean, I was wrapped up in alcohol. I was wrapped up in drugs. I was wrapped up in immoral, you know, situations. And I still had this broken heart that I, I didn't have a father. And I was looking for all these things to, to fill it up. And Bob kept witnessing to me every night, and I was just soaking it in. And then one night he came and he said, Dean, it's, it's, tr- it's time to make a decision. And he pulled a quarter out of his pocket and he held it up and he said, this is a quarter and I'm offering it to you. But you're the one that actually has to take it out of my hand to receive it as a gift. And he says, that's what salvation is like. It's available for you. Jesus died for your sins, but you have to make a decision and accept it. So are you going to take the quarter out of my hand? And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if he was speaking literally. Do, do I really have to take the quarter out of your hand? So I took the quarter out of his hand, and I said, yes, I want to receive Jesus. And so I received Jesus, and, and Bob led me through a prayer. And then I said, well, do you want your quarter back? He goes, no, you keep it. It's a gift. So the next few years, Bob and I would spend a lot of time together. And he was like a father to me. I mean, we were a really odd-looking pair. He was 61 years old, and I'm, I'm like in my early 20s, and we were inseparable. But I was the son he never had, and God was using him to be a father that I had never had. Uh, Bob had a cabin up in Nippon, and he would take me fishing. Uh, he would show me how to paint. You know, he would do woodworking with me, and he was just an amazing guy. My whole life changed. I stopped drinking I stopped uh, partying and stopped uh, smoking immoral relationships and, and my life just completely changed and that guilt that I carried for so long, I was able to share with my mom what had happened and it felt so good just to have it off my chest. But I tell you, my mom and sister were very leery of what was going on and why I was hanging on with you know, this odd old man. But I remember that same year, I asked my mom, you know, what do you want for Mother's Day, Mom? And she said, the greatest gift I could ever ask for is to have a son living the way you're living right now. There was even times where I strayed a bit. And I could always go back to Bob, and he would always be there for me. I mean, and he could even tell if I was struggling or if I went back and I, I wasn't, you know, following, you know, maybe, you know, what I should be. He could see me slipping away and he says, Dean, you're headed for a fall. But I just want you to know when you do fall, I'm here for you. And that's exactly what would happen. You know, I would just, you know, go back into the old lifestyle and then I would come back and Bob said, you know, are you ready to sit down and have a good talk? So my life had changed and about a year after that, um, Bob told me, you know, I think what would really complete you is a wife. <laughs> so he even started to try to play matchmaker with me. And he said, you know, there's someone I want you to meet. Now, she doesn't look like much, but she's a good cook. <laughs> and I said, Bob, that's okay. I'm not really looking for a relationship right now, and, uh, you know, I just want to focus on God, and, and I thought to myself, please don't pull out another quarter. 
So I looked up that old friend, that, that girl, who, that popular girl from high school from Weyburn. I called her up and I said, guess what? You know, I heard you're a Christian. I wanted to let you know I'm a Christian too. And she was just newly married to a, a Christian husband. And she said, well, come to my church. And so I went to her church and I met the pastor there. And this little church was called Living Fountain Fellowship. And the pastor there said to me, you know, you know, he realized I was a new Christian. He said, you know, there's this discipleship class that uh, a couple of the members of this church put on. And uh, the name of the fellow and his wife was uh, James and Noreen Drake. You know, maybe some of you, you know, have known them. And so I went to this discipleship class and there was this, uh, you know, other young people here uh, at this class as well. And it was there where I met this, uh, this wonderful girl named Laura. And of course, we were just friends at first, and um, we were prayer partners because I had uh, I was going to a, on a mission trip to Guatemala, and I asked Laura to be my prayer partner, and uh, we were you know it just started out as a, a friendship. But uh, you know, isn't it interesting? You know, as you follow God, you know the people that He'll put in your path. You know, for you young people, you know you you want to get spouses someday. I'll tell you the best way to get one is follow God, and He'll put the right spouse. In your path. So anyway, uh, Laura and I started to kind of like each other a little bit. And in fact, you know, she actually knew, she knew that I was to be her husband. And I mean, I was, you know, I never had a girlfriend where there wasn't drugs or, or alcohol involved. And I really didn't know how to act, you know, with a, with a Christian girl. So I was just struggling. You know, I wanted to crawl out of my skin sometimes. I actually broke up with Laura twice. And she took me back every time. She was so sure I was supposed to be her husband, and maybe that's what scared me off. <laughs> you know, at the same time, just before she went to discipleship class, she didn't come from a Christian home either. And there was a, an older lady witnessing to my wife at work. And as my, uh, this, uh, this lady was witnessing to uh, Laura, and uh, this was at an old folks' uh, senior place, and Laura also worked at a bank. And at the time, um, this, this lady was witnessing to Laura. Uh, Laura was at this bank, and uh, this person came in, and it was a, a black person, and walked up to Laura's till at the bank and said, you need to know the Lord. And Laura was really surprised, and she said, oh, you know, can I help you? Did you need money? No, you do not, and, and read her name tag, Laura, you do not want to miss serving the Lord. And then he just left. And Laura went to her friend at uh, the other job and said, you know, Shelly, do you believe in black angels? <laughs> and Shelly said, well, I suppose there could be, but I've never heard of one. Um, a couple months later, uh, Shelly brought Laura to a conference, and she, uh, Laura looked across the room and said, there he is, there's that black angel. And then uh, this black angel recognized Laura and uh, said, Laura, like he still remembered her name. This black angel's our pastor, uh, Femi Ogunrundi. <laughs> but Femi said to Laura, you know, are you being, dis are you, you're a Christian now? And she said, yes. Well, you need to be discipled. So he sent her to the same class I was. So anyway, um, I'm not feeling it, right? I'm not feeling this infatuation with Laura. And so I finally said to the Lord, Lord, you gotta show me a sign. You know, is this really supposed to be my wife? Like, I want to just, you know, obey and trust you, but I don't want to miss it either. 
So I was going to Laura's house for the evening. She was living at her parents. And I said to the Lord before I got into the house, I said, Lord, if this is supposed to be my wife, because at, at this point in our relationship, we didn't say we loved each other or anything yet. So we didn't actually say, oh, I love you, or you know, I love you. We didn't say that yet. We weren't at that point in our relationship. So I said, Lord, tonight, if she says, I love you, Dean, then I know without a doubt that this is supposed to be my wife. So we went that evening and we were visiting and, you know, the night was going on and I'm like, Lord, she's not saying it. She's not saying it. It's almost time to go. She has to go to bed. Lord, she's not saying it. And she finally said, what's wrong? I said, like, as if I can say, you know, anything. I'll go, I just pray that you're not saying it. So I, I said, but she wasn't saying it. She goes, you know, and of course, I had broken up twice. We got back together. She knows, you know, I have all these insecurities and, and that sort of thing. And she just said, you know, Dean, before you go, can I just pray for you? And I said, of course, yeah. And she said, you know, Lord, just, just help Dean. You know, help him with his ins- insecurities. And then she stopped and she said, Dean, I feel the Lord saying to you, I love you, Dean. Good night. <laughs> so I walked out. I thought, oh my gosh, she said it. But in a way I totally didn't expect. Okay, Lord, if it doesn't work out, it's your fault. <laughs> I remember getting married and, and kind of hearing the Lord saying, okay, now if it doesn't work out, it's your fault. <laughs> So often my mom and dad will say uh, now, you know, where would you be without Laura? But, but really I know what they mean is, is where would you be without the Lord? I'm not a perfect husband by any means, but I have learned over the years what it does take to be a good husband. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and he gave himself for it. So, so what does that mean? Well, husbands, it means you're going to die. <laughs> I remember this summer, we were trying to think of where we were going for holidays. And, you know, uh, we had sort of, you know, we could go anywhere we wanted to go. And we just couldn't figure it out. Now, my wife loves horses. We, we have a horse. It's a retired racehorse. And Laura's an excellent rider. And, you know, I pay for the hay. <laughs> and, you know, so, so I was praying, you know, Lord, where do you want us to go this summer? And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great? And, and, and the Lord just deposited, I believe, you know, and he said, you know, uh, call one of those, you know, trail riding places in the mountains and, uh, you know, take Laura horseback riding. She'll, you know, she'll love that. And then so uh, Laura came home from her shift and I said, hey, I have this idea. How about, you know, uh, going on this trail ride? And, and some of it's where they even film Heartland. And so she goes, oh, that would just be awesome. So I phone the place and, and I say, I want to book, you know, for, for a, you know, a trail ride. And you can do these seven-day excursions. You can do these, you know, five-day excursions. And so I thought, well, maybe we'll just start off slow. We'll just do a one-day. That shouldn't be too bad. And it's a five-hour trip in the mountain. And so I'm, I'm talking to the person on the phone and they say, well, you know, are you experienced riders? And well, my wife is. She rides all the time. Well, what about you? And I said, well... You know, I've never really ridden a horse. You know, I've been on a horse before. And they go, oh, okay. 
well, how much do you weigh? So I told him I'm a pretty big guy. Oh, okay, you know. So the wheels are spinning, and I think, you know, she was trying to figure out what, what kind of horse, you know, that would suit me. So we get there, and Laura gets this nice peppy horse, and I have this huge horse. Like, you've heard of a Clydesdale. I think this one's like a draft horse. <laughs> very nice personality, very, very calm, very gentle. But when I got on that horse, like, my legs felt like they're... The first hour, I think, I, I started losing feeling in my legs. <laughs> and we were lucky because there wasn't very many people on that trail ride. But we had our, our guide, and then it was Laura, and then it was me. And my horse's name was Chili. And Chili and I had a lot of secrets back at that trail. <laughs> so we went up and down the mountains, and, and uh, then, you know... Uh, the guide looks back at me and said, well, you're doing really good. You're doing really good. You know what? You want to try a trot? And well, okay, sure. <laughs> so they start a trot and, and, you know, I don't know what to do. So I'm like, bang, 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 bang. And oh, I'm just like, oh man. And uh, so I didn't get the hang of it. I didn't realize you have to kind of get up. And, and so, so the next time I do it, I'm getting better and I'm getting better at this. But I mean, I am so sore. <laughs> and then finally, you know, we're at... You know, that five hours later, we're on our last hour, and we're finally going home. She goes, okay, one more trot. I said, okay, one more. And so we're trotting, and I'm up and down and up and down, and then I actually get sort of bucked off the horse, and I'm holding its neck like this. I didn't fall off, but I managed to get myself up, and just then the guy looks back, I'm just doing great. <laughs> and Laura, the whole time, she's just, oh, just loving it so much. I got off that horse after the trail, and I couldn't walk. I was just looking, <laughs> and I ran, in, ran into our guide. You know, um, God gave us, you know, three amazing kids. You know, we have three kids. Daniel, he's 21. He's an iron worker welder. We have a daughter who's almost 20. She's a hairdresser. And uh, a son who's 16 years old. And they all love the Lord. You know, I just feel, you know, God has just done, you know, so many amazing things in my life. You know, uh, I thought, you know, a dream of mine one day would be to get a, uh, a certificate in business. Well, God has different plans. You know, he made a way, you know, like I said, my mom couldn't afford to send me to school, but God made a way to pay for my education, and I have a master's degree, not a business, uh, you know, certificate. You know, I thought, you know, what a dream. I, I'd love to be a manager someday. God had a different plan. You know, he says, no, son, you're not the, the tail, you're the head. I'm an executive. God will make room for you in this life if you choose to serve him. Bob continued to be a father to me for many years. Bob passed away about 10 years ago. And the day that, uh, that I gave my life to the Lord, that Bible that Bob used to, to bring to work every day, he actually gave it to me that day that I got saved. I still have it. This is it. This is the Bible that he gave me. And I always think about that story that Bob told from Luke 15. And Luke 15 talks about two sons and a father. And so there was the first son that he wanted his inheritance right away. And he wanted to uh, take his you know, share of the inheritance and do his own thing. And you know, that's what Bob was talking about, that you know, sometimes we go on our own path and we lose our way. But the Father is there just waiting for you. Like it says in Luke 15, that the Father was actually watching for him. He wasn't ready to accuse him. He wasn't ready to you know, just 
sort of, you know, yeah, you can be a slave. No, you're my son. And even, you know, the, the prodigal son, when he went away, he said, you know, I don't even, you know, I'm not, I don't deserve to be, you know, your son. Just, just make me a slave. And he was rehearsing that before he, he got to his father. And before he could even say those words, what did the father do? He wrapped, like he ran to him. And he, he put his arms around his neck and kissed him. He put a new cloak on him, gave him a ring. And that's what, how God feels about us. We go our, our, our different ways, but he is waiting for you. There's another brother in that story too. And that's the older brother. He wasn't very happy that, you know, the father, you know, threw a party for him and he was all glad. Yeah, sure, you know, spend all the money, come back and we just accept him. But sometimes we can be like that, that other brother, right? Where we think we're okay because, you know, we're doing all the right things. You know, we're going to church. But I'm here to tell you today, it's about a relationship with the father. The reason Jesus died for us is so we can be adopted as a son. I had that father wound. You know, Ryan talked about sort of, you know, I didn't have that father in my life. And that's what we're looking for sometimes. You know, asking Jesus in, and then it opens our world up to the father. You know, it's not about being religious. It's not about being, you know, I have to go to church. I have to read two chapters out of my Bible. You know, something happened to me about two years ago where my daughter wasn't following the Lord, which was really weird to me. I thought, well, how could she not follow the Lord when she's like, you know, born in a Christian home? And I didn't tell my kids sort of my past. They didn't know my story. And so here, one of my own, my daughter, starts, you know, this, this uh, you know, drinking and, and going out. And, you know, I got really frustrated and said, if you're going to live like that, you need to leave this house. Those, those are our rules. You can't, you can't do that. And I remember the day that she left, um, you know, and I was really cold about it. I said, okay, you know, give me your keys and, you know, you can, you don't live here anymore. And, the, and when she left, my heart broke. You know, when something like that happened, like I just couldn't believe, like just um, pictures of my daughter, like raising her from a, a little girl and, you know, I'm the one that's supposed to be responsible for her. And now I'm kicking her out. And so we had to work through that. But, but in that, I was reminded because, you know, in that moment and the days following, I realized how much I love my little girl. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, I love you even more than you love your girl. And, it, and you realize in that moment, it doesn't matter what your kids do you'll still always love them. And that's just like the love of your father. No matter what you do and how you know, distant you feel away from your father, he is there waiting for you. Some of us here tonight, we may feel like that prodigal son that you know, we're so far off, you know, can God accept me again? Well, I'm here to tell you he can. Some of you might be like the other brother, the older brother, that forgot about their relationship with the father, that it's all about works, that I have to do this and that. That father loved that older brother just as much as he did the younger. I like to think that there's a third brother of that story, and it's the one that told that story, and that's Jesus. He's the one that told, because he's the one that understands the father's love. And he understands it so much that he gave up his whole life and died for us. And he wants us to realize how much the Father loves each and every one of you and have a relationship with each and every one of you. So 
Jesus died that shameful death because we can't pay for our sins. It's a gift. Just like Bob said, it's right there for you, but you have to come and receive it. So I'd like to call the ministry team together, but um, thank you very much for, for being here tonight. I love sharing my testimony. I love hearing about other testimonies because it encourages us, you know, to see what God has done in our lives. And, you know, Ryan, you're just at the beginning. God has so much, you know, you know, great things for you and your family. And every one of you who make that decision to follow Jesus, whether you're, you're young or, or, or you're old, God is still our father and he wants to have a relationship with you. Amen. Amen.